Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivin Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshiva Doraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have the honor of being joined by Rabbi Natano Wiederblank, Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Natano, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. So uh, before we get to the topic at hand, just to provide some biographical context, uh, so aside from being a Magid Shir, um, you're also somebody who wrote two, and I think a third one's coming out, you know, hopefully pretty soon, two extraordinary so, uh, works of uh, Jewish philosophy that deal with fundamental issues in Jewish thought. Um, anybody who hasn't read these books, I highly recommend them. They're really encyclopedic and really extraordinary. Uh, just to provide some biographical context, you know, you're somebody who studied in classical yeshivot. So where did you uh, develop your passion for the world of, uh, of Machshavah? It's a great question. I was always somewhat interested in Machshava. And while I was in Yeshiva, I generally followed the standard Yeshiva curriculum and learned Gemara morning, afternoon, and night, and occasionally would study works of Machshava. I was very fortunate to develop a connection to Rav Aaron Lapiansky. I'm from Silver Spring, and he moved to Silver Spring when I was in 11th grade. At that time, the yeshiva was still very small, and I had the opportunity to grow close to him. And he's someone who's a real gadol in the field of machshava, and someone who exposed me to so many different works, and also the importance of studying these things and considering them thoughtfully. In terms of teaching and writing about machshava, it actually began not so much in yeshiva. But over the summers, we went to different communities to teach Torah. We were in Edmonton, Alberta for five years. We were in Las Vegas and other communities. And I had to give shiurim. And the topics that most interested me, Gemara and Halacha, were probably not so interesting to them. So I asked them, What's, uh, what interests you? And they started saying, well, would, would you talk about the afterlife? What's Olam Haba? free will, things like that. And I had to give a shear on these topics. So I had to learn the topics. And sometimes uh, the best things uh, that I've uh, done come from uh, the obligations or the responsibility of teaching. So that's how I began uh, thinking about the types of topics that ended up becoming the book and other shiurim. And ever since then, though, my primary focus is still on Gemara and Halacha, I've really very much enjoyed having a chance to spend more time studying Machshava. Okay, excellent. So uh, with that brief introduction uh, to your sort of uh, intellectual journey, I think we can start uh, the conversation about the question of providence and to what extent is Hashem actively involved in the life of, of individuals, maybe more broadly in the life of uh, Israel as a nation. So I thought like an interesting uh, entry point to having this conversation would be uh, a video uh, that was produced by uh, Mordechai Shapiro, 
Mordechai Shapiro was my Talmud when I was a Rebbe at MTA many ions ago. So if Mordechai Shapiro wow. is listening, he has a, I have a shout out to uh, the 10th grade Gemara class in MTA in, I don't know, 2004. So um, Mordechai Shapiro has this video uh, called Hakol Mishamayim. And uh, if you watch the video, it's actually an interesting uh, theological statement, aside from being a great song, uh, where it assumes that basically there's an individual uh, who's going about his day, and he has all these sort of cues from Hashem, and he's sort of not aware of the cues. And uh, in the video, he starts to get frustrated by, for example, traffic. He doesn't realize that the guy, somebody, he cuts somebody off while he's on the way to his business interview. He only realizes later that the person he cuts off is the boss who's going to interview him. And then at the end of the video, Mordechai Shapiro wakes up from a dream, right? And we realize that the whole thing was really a dream. And uh, ultimately, he's able to sort of re-engage that day through the prism of reality. And he's able to see the cues, right? And see the cues that it's a kol mishamayim. And really, God is sort of actively involved in the intimacies of, uh, in the intricacies of his day. So I'm curious just to frame it. I know there are different perspectives within the Rishonim and the Achronim about, uh, about the role of divine providence. And there's no better place to start than, I think, Shitas Harambam, right? Obviously, you know, we could spend days probably talking about Shitas Harambam, but uh, we do live in the Twitter world. So maybe you had to give sort of like a, a short overview of Shitas Harambam, right? What is the Rambam's view of divine providence? Maybe then we can sort of plug that in to think how would the Rambam conceive uh, theologically of the Mordechai Shapiro video, Hakomi Shemayim? That's a really good question. Very appropriate for the title of this uh, podcast, Tzarech Ion, because the Rambam's position is very much one of Tzarech Ion. In fact, it's it's not just my uh, lack of understanding that makes me wonder what did the Rambam really believe in Hashgacha. In 1199, Shmuel ibn Tibon, who was Rambam's preferred translator, wrote a letter to the Rambam, who was living in Egypt, asking him for clarification of his view on providence. And he noted some contradictions that he found in the Rambam's writing, and he presented a theory that he had to resolve these contradictions, but he wasn't really sure what did the Rambam actually hold. We don't have the Rambam's response. We don't know if he did respond, Um, but uh, the Rambam's position has been debated. What did the Rambam think about Hashgacha ever since then? And the reason for this debate is the Rambam says a number of things which don't seem reconcilable. The Rambam writes that everything that happens is just, and God is absolutely just. The Rambam also seems to write that providence is dependent upon the degree to which a person connects to God such that if he's not connected, he could be subject to the whims of nature, things that seem to happen randomly. How do those things fit? If something could happen to me randomly, so how could that be just? And so there are a number of different approaches how one can understand the Rambam. It's interesting, the Rambam, while he writes that Hashgacha does not seem to be equally applied to everybody. And tzaddikim, for example, or people that are more closely connected to God experience a higher degree of hashgacha. The Rambam, I believe, would not think, and and I'd add something. The Rambam writes in a couple of places, including 
in Hilchos Tanios, in his letter to the Jews of Marseille, he warns against attributing suffering to happenstance, carry, and that a person has to be very careful about that. And so I think that even though it may be the case that the Rambam believes that not everything is min hashamayim, in the sense that there are things that might happen to a person that are a result of nature. But in terms of the response that a person has to have to those events in his life, so the response is the same, meaning to say that uh, the Rambam fully accepts the idea that one's response to the things that happen in their life has to be introspection, has to be tshuva, has to be improvement. And to simply say, well, that just happened randomly or arbitrarily, so it doesn't really make any difference. That's a, a position that the Rambam very much forcefully rejects. So the Rambam's position on Hashkacha is indeed complex. It's not always so clear what, what he holds. I have some theories, though, uh, as you pointed out, if we're going to keep this podcast to an hour, two, or three, uh, I, time doesn't really allow, allow for, um, for fleshing it out. And, and I, am so, I am also very uncertain. My, my theories are at best theories. Um, but, but I do think that the Rambam, what, what he's unambiguous about is how we respond to to suffering. In fact, there's a, there's an interesting letter the Rambam writes about how he himself was once on a ship. He was actually traveling to Israel. The Rambam fled Spain. He went to a number of countries, and at one point he was uh, on a ship. And he writes, this took place in 1165, I believe. And he talks about a storm that made him uh, wonder whether he was going to make it. And he talks about how he fasted during that time and he took vows, he took Nadarim, and of course he was saved. He arrives in Eretz Yisrael. He writes that subsequently those days, which were once days of suffering, would be days of, of celebration. And he, uh, he continued for the rest of his life. And even he says he asked his descendants to, to devote those days um, to Torah and mitzvos and uh, charity, staka. So the Rambam, the way he lived his life was, I think, one in which he felt that when things happen to us, we have to respond in a meaningful way. And even whether or not it's the case that sometimes things are the result of Hashkacha, and sometimes perhaps not, though again, we could elaborate on that. Um, our response has to be the same. It has to be shuva, it has to be improvement. And, um, and that part, I think, of the Rambam within the Rambam is, is clear. And also, it has to be one of tefillah. That's something that the Rambam writes a lot about. Well, I think, you know, the example that you're referencing, examples, for example, the Rambam is experiencing, you know, something traumatic or the question of, you know, Yisura and stuff like that. So those are examples where let's say they seem to be like fairly extreme in terms of a person's life, right? So for example, a person experiences something uh, which, you know, obviously is, is quite intense. So, you know, irrespective of what sort of like the metaphysical implications of that are in terms of Ashkacha, so the Rambam obviously thinks that there is religious value 
right? And a person sort of thinking about his life as being one guided by the, the divine hand. But let's say something more, you know, simple, something more ordinary, right? Something which isn't, for example, as intense as what the Ramam experienced on the ship, or if, you know, mm -hmm. Shalom, someone experiences sickness. Say, for example, you know, to, to go back to the video, you know, again, I don't mean to, I know, I, I didn't think, and I'm not sure if Mordechai Shapiro thought when he was going through the video was thinking about this is going to become, you know, the basis of, uh, of, of, of theological engagement, but, you know, that's the nature of the world. You put something out there, you never know where, where, where it ends up. But, you know, in, in the video, exactly. So in this video, you, you have a much more extreme formulation where, for example, things that aren't in any way Isurim, right? Isurim, things, for example, that a person's just like on their way to work and all of a sudden, you know, somebody, uh, you know, so all of a sudden they're walking by in one part of the video where, you know, somebody who's on crutches walks by and causes a significant delay in terms of a person's ability to get to work. So, you know, how I think the standard view, although admittedly it's complicated, I think the standard view, right, the way it's explained that the Rambam in those areas, again, unless you're a great tzaddik and you're somebody who has a deep intellectual and religious connection to, to Hashem, so there is an assumption, right, that the Rambam, you know, oftentimes would think of those things as just being a function of nature, right? So do you think that, like, in those sort of, let's say you have two extremes, you have, let's say, for example, the great tzaddik who has access to a lot of hashkacha, you have the ordinary Jew who, let's say, doesn't have access to hashkacha in the same way, but when it comes to his religious posture, he should be somebody who lives a life where he wants to better himself, right? And that obviously expresses itself in terms of the suffering and other areas of, of re really inten real intensity. But then the generic sort of like walking on the street and having like a strange person come over to you and I don't know, ask you for something, right? So how does the Rambam conceive of that like middle category? It's a good question. I I, I think the Rambam, the, the Rambam in one place in Marnevulchim writes about different perspectives on Hashgacha. And he, before getting to the Torah's perspective, he presents four different perspectives that are not the Torah's perspective. Two of them are wrong because they don't allow for sufficient hashgacha. And two of them are wrong because there's too much hashgacha. And he then presents the Torah's perspective, which is in between. Now, it's not in between like, well, not a, you know, not too much, not too little, but it's in between in the sense that um, it rejects certain aspects of both theories. Um, and so there's a certain type of excessive hashkacha that the Rambam certainly rejects. The question is, is there so much of a difference? Is there is there that much of a difference between big things and small things? Um, there's a Gemara that talks about this question, at least it would seem, it says, how far does Yisurin go? And it seems to say that even pretty small things are subject to Ashkacha, though, interestingly, there's a certain, it implies that there is a gvul, there is a limit, um, and, and perhaps it's not absolutely everything. Um, the question, I think, that you're asking is a really good one, and I'm not sure of what the Rambam would respond. We have to distinguish between our response in the sense of tshuva or tefillah or the like, which, like we said, is very, very important. And it's important in, in, in big things as well as small things. When Chazal say that I don't think they're necessarily talking about just cataclysmic Yisurim. Presumably, that's very small things. 
we are certainly meant to daven for not just big things, but also small things. And I think there's no question that if you're davening for small things, so that means you believe that even small things are subject to ashgacha. We say in Shmon Esrei, So the Rambam said that as well. We're thanking God for not just the big things, but even the small things, the things that happen to us every single day. And therefore, even if I don't know whether every single thing happens to me is hashgacha or not hashgacha, the question is, how much of a difference does it make? In other words, is there a nafkamina between the, in terms of how I live my life, between the approach that absolutely everything that happens to me is hashgacha to the smallest detail, or the approach that, let's say, some things are subject to hashgacha and some things are just part of nature, that God doesn't constantly intervene and only some of the time, some of the things that happen to me are a result of direct hashgacha. Whether or not that's the case, the, the Brahman's perspective or not, we'll leave out, but let's let's just think of those two perspectives. So what difference does that make in my life? Either way, I have to respond in a way that's productive. And either way, I would add, I'm not really going to know the cause of things. Meaning to say, even if I take the perspective that absolutely everything that happens to me is hashkacha, and if I walked outside and I saw this person or I stepped on this bug or whatever happened, that is hashkacha. So I still don't really know, assuming I'm not prophetic in some way, the reason for these things. So I might believe that there's a divine cause, and I believe that they happen for a reason. I don't, I don't understand. I don't know. So how much of a difference does it really make in a practical sense in terms of how I live my life? I still have to daven for everything, and I still have to respond through introspection and tshuva through to, to the things that occur in my life. So what difference does it make if they are direct hashgacha or they're not? Well, I guess um, you know it's a, it's a great point. I guess you know one way to think about it is to assume ultimately that there is no real nafkamina in terms of you know how a person lives his life, right? But the other way to think about it is you know if a, I think one of the downsides one can imagine of like a heavy hashgacha model right, would be to assume that it can lead to somebody uh, starting to interpret things in ways and constantly look for signs, right, and generate interpretations that um, you know number one, as you indicated, are speculative. And number two can be sort of like counterproductive in the sense that, you know, he, he or she could think that the second, you know, something happens to them, right? So they have to sort of act almost instinctively because they have to sort of respond to the divine call, right? So I think that like, you know, you can imagine somebody not necessarily fully, you know, sort of like removing any sense of responsibility, but you could imagine someone saying to the effect of like, well, you know, so many things are providential that they're kind of interaction with the world is always based on a response what they perceive to be you know the divine call and in a certain sense that may complicate their relationship to taking responsibility for their own actions right yeah absolutely so I, I think that that that's really such a good point in other words i think whatever approach you take tashkacha and let's say you take the approach that absolutely everything is hashkacha so 
two things have to be kept in mind. First of all, somehow or another, that's compatible with free will, meaning to say that all major Jewish thinkers accept that there's freedom. And that's another point we need to get to. But the second is that we don't know how to interpret that. There's a, a very fascinating comment that Reb Sadok makes. Reb Sadok writes about the dangers of trying to interpret hashkacha. And he gives an example of from the story in Shoftim of Pesel Micha. Micha set up a shrine, which of course was the wrong thing to do. And someone, he, he originally didn't have a priest. And then someone from the tribe of Levi happened to wander into him and meet him. And he sets him up as a Kohen in his priest, in his shrine. And he says, wow, what hashkacha pratis that now I have a real Kohen or a real Levi, someone, you know, the real deal in my shrine. And he, he says, I see now that God really wants me to do this. So that certainly was not the case. He, he totally misread the hashkacha that happened. And that's, that's such an important point. So whatever approach you take for, for hashkacha, I think that one has to be very careful uh, about thinking that we understand the reason and uh, we're not prophets. And so one can certainly attribute it to God, but you're still, you're still not really left with a certain understanding of, of the cause. Yeah, I remember um, during the uh, disengagement from Gaza. So I remember um, Ariel Sharon. I think he had a stroke subsequently, not not that long after disengagement. So some people were saying, "Oh, this is a this is a divine punishment for you know him removing the Jews from their homes in Gaza." To which somebody responded, "You know, this is the problem of interpreting Hashkacha, right? Because someone could have responded, well, Ariel Sharon has been overweight for like his entire life, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, maybe maybe it's Hashkacha that uh, he was able to survive this long in order to be able to." Uh, to uh, you know, engage, engage in the act of disengagement. So I think you're right that there obviously is a significant risk in thinking that we have prophetic insight in terms of how these things play out. Um, there is one area where I think that, um, I think a lot of people actually aren't that familiar with it. And actually I think it's a fascinating sort of corollary to the question of hashkacha, and that is the mida of bitachon. Um, you know, to what extent uh, do we not only have to believe, right, have emuna, right, uh, in, in Hashem, but we actually have to have trust, right, believe, Right in some aspect of God's providential role, and um, there is a really amazing article written by uh, your colleague at YU, Rabbi uh, Daniel Stein, in Tradition about uh, bitachon and about the different views uh, in classical Rishonim and Achorim about bitachon, and, and he quotes a view there which he he claims is the traditional view. Although I, there's a debate about this about uh, whether or not his reading is accurate, but I think it's a very creative and good reading which assumes that one of the ways to have a more sort of providential experience in your life, right, is, um, or to feel the divine hand in your life, is to have a heightened level of trust in God, okay? This model assumes that the more bitachon you have, right, the more capacity there is to have a just outcome, right? That somehow if you really want to feel the divine hand in your life, Right. Well, then the best thing to do is to maximize your trust in God. And by maximizing your trust in God, you sort of exponentially increase the possibility that you will feel the divine presence and good things 
will happen to you. He quotes this, for example, among others, many scholars he quotes this in the name of. One of them is the author of Navardic, who used to sign his letters to Baal Bitachon Bet Bet, right? And he was somebody who sort of had this really extreme formulation when it came to the issue of Bitachon. Another example of this, which is also in the article, which is an amazing citation from the Nefesh Chaim. The Nefesh Chaim thought that if you believe in the, if you have full belief in the idea of Ein Od Milvado, right, that somehow belief in Ein Od Milvado by its nature, right, can actually impact and protect you from sort of the negative aspects of, of, of nature and other powers. Uh, it almost reminds me of like the Matrix, right, where it's like if you, if you believe right? It's like if you believe in death and you die, right? Or if you have the full bitachon, right, you can sort of transcend that. So just in terms of mapping out some of the different perspectives on the question of bitachon. And bitachon, again, I think people have heard about divine providence, but I feel like bitachon doesn't get sufficient press, right? So sort of like, what are the different views on the issue of bitachon? That's a great question. And, and also one that uh, a proper proper uh, analysis of the sigi would take a long time. I'd point out a couple of things. First of all, the Alter Navardic or the Chazonish or the like didn't make up the concept of bitachon. Tanakh is full of bitachon. Yirmiyahu, among others, uh, talks about the life of a person without bitachon and with bitachon. If you look at Yirmiyahu, Parak Yedzayin, Ko'amar Hashem, and it talks about what it's like to live without bitachon. A person, interestingly over there, the person who instead of putting his bitachon in God, he puts his bitachon in a person, another person. And then contrast that. It's a, it's a song, but it's also a pasuk. And it talks about the nature of this person's life. So the person who trusts in God, who has bitachon in God, um, is someone who's going to live a rich life. Now, it could be understood as that as meaning they'll always be protected, and we'll get back to that in a moment. But certainly, the life of the person with bitachon is very different than the life of a person without bitachon. And I think that's very much true, really regardless of the perspective you take on, on hashkacha. In fact, as I was asking the question, I, I was just thinking about um, what we read about a couple of weeks ago, the story of Bilam and his donkey. So Bilam is riding to curse the Jewish people, and his donkey veers from the path three times, and he keeps on hitting the donkey, and finally the donkey opens his mouth and says, you know, Bilam, haven't I been a, a good donkey for a long time? Did I ever do this before? Don't I always follow directions? And Bilam's forced to say, yeah, you know, you've been a great donkey. So what's wrong with what Bilam did? And what the donkey's telling him, and which is absolutely right, is that you should have a little bit of trust. If your donkey has always been very good and responsible, and now all of a sudden he's uh, veering off the path and doing crazy things. So you have two choices. You could think, well, now all of a sudden my donkey's become malicious and mean and crazy or whatever, or, or maybe there's something I don't know about it. I don't know what's happening. And the rebuke 
that the donkey is giving Bilam is that based off of our relationship that we've had until now, you should have trusted me. And it wasn't right that you started hitting me just because I did something that didn't make any sense. You should have had some trust. And if that's true with a donkey, it's true with people. It's true in our relationships. If our spouse, our friends do things that upset us, if we remember who they are and our broader relationship, then maybe we won't be so quick to jump to conclusions or the like. So if that's true with donkeys and with people, so certainly we should have bitachon in God. And if we believe that God loves us, that he's all powerful, that he's just, that he's merciful, if we believe all those things, so that is going to affect everything in our life. And that bitachon is warranted equally whether you take the approach that absolutely everything is hashkacha, or you take a more nuanced and complex approach, which some of the Rishonim take. We should have some trust in God. And, and that's very important. It's interesting you brought up the idea of the skula that Reb Chaim Velazhiner quotes in Nefshachayim. So Reb Chaim Velazhiner proves that from an interesting Gemara. The Gemara in Sanhedrin talks about Rabbi Hanina. And the Gemara says that Rabbi Hanina wasn't really worried about witchcraft. He wasn't worried about witches harming him. And the Gemara wonders, was that correct? Was that reckless after all? And this is so important to remember, whatever approach you take to Bitachon as well as Hashgacha, we certainly believe Ein Som Chenal Hanes. A person may not rely on miracles. They're chayev to do hishtadlus. And you're a sinner if you rely on a miracle, if you depend on God to the point that you're not doing appropriate hishtadlus. So the Gemara wonders, how is it appropriate for Rabbi Hanina to not uh, take precautions? And what the Gemara answers is that Rabbi Hanina believed Enod Milvado, and even when it comes to Kishaf. So, so what does that mean, Enod Milvado? And here's what's so important. So the Gemara there says that that was something that Rabbi Hanina was able to believe, but apparently even other Chachamim, any other, even other sages were not able to reach that Madrega. So the Nefshaim says, if a person truly, truly, truly believes a no milvado, so then, now what does that mean? It means that there is nothing besides God. There is nothing besides God. And again, well, well, maybe we could explain what that means in a moment. If you truly have internalized that belief. So then these other forces in the world that seem to be powerful forces can't have an effect on you. So. That is not something that's easy. Again, even the other Chachanan and the Gemara couldn't reach that level, in which case they had to take precautions. The Rambam actually says something in Marnavuchim that's very, very, very similar to what the Nefshchaim says. Obviously, they use different types of terminology, but the Rambam 
in 351 in Mar Nevuchim talks about how the person whose thoughts are always upon God is not just subject to absolute hashgacha, but it sounds like he's saying absolute shmira, meaning to say they have nothing to worry about. So the Rambam actually has a similar idea. Now, how does that relate to bitachon in general? So I don't know if that is, that, that's an extraordinary madrega. It's, it's the idea to, to truly live your life with the absolute belief that there are no other real existences besides God. Real existences meaning, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to define that another time. Um, if, if someone does that, so that's, that's, that's extraordinary. Most people do not succeed in reaching such a high madrega. But everybody, I think, is able to, though this isn't an easy avoda, but everybody's able to have bitachon, to have trust in Hashem. So now the question is, well, what, what does it mean to, to have trust? What does trust mean? So there are different ways to explain what bitachon means and specifically how it differs from emunah. One approach, which is, I think, widely accepted uh, in Rabbi Stein's article that you referenced, he discusses whether or not there's a debate about this topic. But one approach, and that is the approach taken by the Chazonish, and the Chazonish explains what does bitachon mean? So the first thing that he tells us, and it's hard for me that anyone could, could disagree with this, is to believe that bitachon does not mean that if you simply have bitachon, it's going to be okay, or that it's guaranteed to be okay. Why do I say that it's hard for me to believe that anyone disagrees with this? Because look at all the great people throughout our history who are absolute tzaddikim, and we believe were certainly Bali Bitachon who died, who were killed. Are we going to say that they lacked Bitachon? When Rebbe Hanan Wasserman was killed by the Nazis, are we going to say that he had insufficient Bitachon? And had he had more Bitachon, he would have been saved? It's very hard to imagine such a thing is true. So Bitachon does not mean, and this is what the Chazanish points out, bitachon does not mean that if you simply have bitachon, then you're guaranteed to be saved. And that's the point that the Chazanish begins with. He, he begins, this is in his work, Emuno Bitachon, which is a very, very powerful work. And at the beginning of the second chapter, he writes that there's this mistake that many people have with respect to bitachon. He calls it a ta'us no shenes a deeply rooted error that many people have. And they think that if you simply have bitachon, then you're guaranteed that everything will turn out okay. And turning out okay in the sense that turning out as you want it to turn out. So that's not true. Everything will turn out okay in the sense that the Chazanish says that it'll happen as God wants it to happen. But that's not always the same as what I want. And unless there's been a prophecy, 
that something is going to happen, you can't know for sure that it's going to happen. So what then does bitachon mean? So the Chazanish understands that bitachon means the belief that nothing happens by chance. And if something happened, it's supposed to happen. That's the way he understands bitachon. In a sense, bitachon is actualized emuna. Emuna, I believe God exists. I believe perhaps that he controls things. But is that the way I live my life? Is that, it's, it, one way of putting it is, it's, it's a, applied emuna. And let's uh, go back to the analogy that we had before from Bilam's donkey. So, so rationally, I think um, anyone who uh, would have thought about the situation might have said it doesn't make sense to hit the donkey because he has been such a faithful and reliable donkey. But in the moment, Bilam was just so angry that all he could do was hit the donkey. He had no trust. And Emuna could be a similar thing. A person can, in theory, believe, but, but how does it affect their life? When the things happen in their life, do they believe? And do they live their life with the belief that this is from God? And so if we go back to those Pesukim and Yirmiyahu that we started with, Baruch HaGever Sheif Tach Hashem, the person who has bitachon in Hashem will be blessed. And the Pasuk says that he's going to be like a tree planted by the water and his roots will be able to spread and when the heat comes, his leaves will still be green. He's not going to be anxious. He's not going to be nervous. He's going to bear fruit. So that could be understood as saying, yes, if you have bitachon, you'll be rewarded for your bitachon with wonderful things. But even if that's not what it means, the life of a person with bitachon will be a life in which they won't have the same anxiety. They won't have the same worry because they have this trust. They have trust in God. God's looking out for them. God loves them. God cares about them. And so the way I approach everything in my life is going to be very different. Well, I do think that um, these two conversations, I mean, the question of providence and the question of bitachon, are related in the sense that, like the Mali described in the Chazonish, again, the model that's you know, associated with, let's say, the Maharal and the, the um, Altan um, that's sort of its own uh, paradigm. But even the softer version of the Chazonish, if you try and sort of harmonize it with the different views you mentioned earlier, right, it, it sounds on the surface that um, it, it may not be that easy to harmonize with the, let's say, more st standard view of the Rambam's perspective on Hashkacha. In other words, you're, you're, what the Chazonish is saying basically is that it's true that the outcome may not be what I want per se. In other words, there could be something that's, let's say a, a, a mean in terms of thinking about it is, could something bad happen, right? So in other words, for the Chazonish, something bad could happen, but it's only from my perspective, right? That that's bad because mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, in the divine plan, right? It's not, it's not bad, right? It looks bad right now, but it's not really bad, right? But even the Chazonish is assuming that there is sort of, even on an individual level, not only on a national level, right? That there is a providential dimension that a person could assume that it's not only trust in the sense that he maintains the relationship. We'll get to that in a minute. Baron Lichtenstein quotes, I think, from the Katakemach um, about sort of another view, right? But it's not only that we have trust in the relationship, but we have trust that there is a plan. 
So that works great if you assume a hyper-providential model, because then you're assuming that everything that's happening to you is part of a divine plan. But if you're assuming that there's this other model out there, let's for the purpose of simplicity, you know, I know this nuance in Chita Sarambam, let's just call it plant mo model A, right? So if you're going to accept model A, that there is more active involvement of the natural world in the person's life, assuming he's not a great tzaddik, right? Then the way I see it is it's even harder for that individual to sort of think in on each terms, Kavachomer, right? In terms like of the of the uh, Alter and Vardic. It's a great point. I, I think you're right. I think it is harder, um, but I'm not sure it's impossible. Meaning to say, and and, and it is safer. It's more comfortable um, to just say, well, that everything is Hashkacha, and and, and it might be true, but but um, I, I don't I don't think. I, I, that there is no room for the Chazonish's definition of Hashgacha, even if you take a more limited approach to providence. You wouldn't formulate it exactly the way the Chazonish does. The Chazonish does accept a robust perspective on Hashgacha, but it doesn't mean that the model he sets up is impossible, because ultimately, I believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the show. HaKadosh Baruch Hu allowed things to happen the way that they did. HaKadosh Baruch Hu feels that this is what's best for me, for the universe, for the world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is watching me. There is justice. There is a divine God who's all-powerful and who's compassionate and who loves me. And that being the case, I can feel confident, that same confidence, that same level of bitachon, that same level of trust, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there. And there's no reason why the events that happen to me in my life, the complexities, have to take away from that. I don't fear evil because I know that you, God, are with me. That's 100% true, regardless of the approach you take with Hashgacha. So I, I think, though I agree with you, it's harder. It's a harder avoda in a sense. But I, I think that the avoda of bitachon is absolutely possible, whether or not you embrace an all-encompassing approach to Hashgacha. Kaddish Baruch Hu is with us always. He's holding our hands. He's there with us. He's looking out for us. And that is true no matter what. And so I think that you might formulate it a little differently, but fundamentally the approach is still there. Baruch HaGavari Shaftach Bashem is true no matter what, how you understand the exact nature of Hashgacha. Yeah, maybe we could sort of just uh, end with one um, other sort of manifestation of the question of Hashkacha, and that is sort of moving from the individual to the collective. I remember I went one time to take my students to Rav Nachum Rabinovich, Zechazach who aside from being, you know, an extraordinary Tamachacham, was also a philosopher, and he had a degree in the philosophy of science and mathematician. And uh, we talked to him about um, the question of proving God's existence among many topics, and one of the things he pointed out was he said that he thinks that uh, one of the greatest proofs, again, obviously not a mathematical proof, but still a, uh, a compelling argument nonetheless, right, is the uh, existence of Am Yisrael throughout the ages, 
right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm curious just if we could sort of end with this point. Um, I think oftentimes when people you know, think about different perspectives on Hashkacha, there's a lot of focus on Hashkacha on the individual level. But I think it is the case, I'm curious if you can elaborate on this, that even uh, the thinkers who have a more sort of nuanced perspective on nature versus Hashkacha do believe that when it comes to the national degree of providence, it's significantly more elevated. Right. And that, you know, even if you're not, let's say, the Baal Shem Tov when it comes to questions of Hashkacha, right, or uh, Bitachon, right, um, even those thinkers still would see Am Yisrael sort of survival and thriving in different settings, et cetera, et cetera, as part of a divine plan. Right. So, so if you could just speak for a few minutes about what is Hashkacha on an individual level, more on a national level, right? Maybe what are some of the implications for how a person should orient himself in terms of thinking about looking at Kla Yisrael as an entity? Sure, I, I think that's a, it's a wonderful point, and and you see that in the Rambam as well. By the way, in a number of places, one of them is the Rambam in Perak Aleph of Hilchos Tanios, who talks about how we're supposed to see Hashkacha on a national level. I I'd like to perhaps point to an idea in the Ramchal. I think that's helpful about that. The Ramchal writes that. There's two types of hanhaga, two types of ways in which God relates to the world. One is what he calls hanhagas hayichud, and one is what he calls hanhagas hamishpat. Hanhagas hayichud is from the word echad, and it's the idea that there's a plan in history. And what's the ultimate plan? Echad. One day, the whole world will see God's oneness and recognize God's oneness. And there's there's a, that's in very broad strokes, but the idea that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is involved in history and has a plan in history uh, is certainly one that's true. And while we don't know how he's gonna get from point A to point B, but there is a plan. So, even though there's also Hanagas Hamishpat. Hanagas Hamishpat is almost God being reactive versus proactive. Hanagas Hamishpat is that I have free will, I'm going to make choices, and God will react to my choices. There's going to be justice. Hanagas Hayichud is that, yes, HaKadosh Baruch is reactive, and based off of my free choices, God will respond in different ways. But ultimately and simultaneously, there's also direction and there's purpose. And that's something that that is certainly true. And I think, as you pointed out, anyone who studies Jewish history can only be amazed when they see these incredible things, things that make no sense. And that happened at every stage of our history. And, and till this day, how could you not be inspired? How could you not see the the hand of God? There's no other way to explain it. And that's really what's so important, because like we said before, we have to be very careful about interpreting hashkacha, both in our own lives and even in history. When, when things happen, at most, you know, we could speculate, but, but we have to be very weary. But we do know that the Jewish people are are subject to Hashkacha, and Eretz Yisrael has a higher degree of Hashkacha. Ene Hashem Lo Kachaba, 
the eyes of God are on Eretz Yisrael, may reishas hashanat achrashana, from the beginning till the end of the year. And so I think you're absolutely right. And when we study history or we look at current events, we certainly have to appreciate that the things that are happening are hashgacha. I'd add, though, one, one important caveat, which is our belief that there is hashgacha in history does not in any way absolve us from doing whatever we can to help. Just like it's obvious that the believer in hashgacha can't say, well, this is happening because of God. Why do you know somebody uh, fell and is hurt? Uh, why should I bother uh, saving him? If God wants him to live, he'll live. And if God wants him to die, he'll die. There's no need for me to uh, dirty my hands. I'll just let God figure it out. That's certainly wrong. Um, we have an absolute responsibility to step in and help. And the same thing when it comes to history. So even though we believe that there is hashkacha in history, there's direction in history, there's an end of history, and somehow or another, things will happen as they should happen. But if that attitude leads to the perspective that, so I don't have to do anything because God will take care of things. So that's very much the wrong approach. And so it's important, you know, in a certain sense, uh, we talked about before how it's a little more comfortable, a little more easy to have bitachon if you take the uh, all-encompassing approach to providence. Well, it's also perhaps harder to take responsibility. Um, it's easier to sort of say, well, you know, let God take care of it. After all, he's controlling everything. And and that's false. No, nobody would believe that's true. And so our belief in hashkacha and in direction of history can't in any way take away from our responsibility to do everything that we can to always make sure that things are going in the right direction and that good things are happening and to stop evil to the extent that we can and to improve the world. And that's our job. And that's the God, the job that God gave us. And we have to make sure that uh, we, our belief in Hashkacha and the bitachon that we have doesn't in any way let it make us think that we are, we're off the hook. Maybe just add one uh, last point. Uh, I forgot to mention this earlier. Um, getting back to the question of uh, Hashkacha and Bitachon and different iterations uh, of these themes, one of the interesting features of the evolution of Jewish thought is the extent to which uh, certain debates you know, that were very prominent and quite robust in the medieval period uh, over time can sort of uh, not necessarily be um, sort of solved, but oftentimes the nature of the debate evolves and sort of shrinks. If you think about it, for mm -hmm. example, in the medieval period, there's a lot of debate about the extent of Hashkacha. And it seems to me, although you have a lot more expertise than I do in terms of contemporary Jewish thought, it seems to me that over time, the more robust Hashkacha model has sort of won the day. And I'm not saying that anybody who believes in the uh, alternative view is in any way, you know, a heretic or anything like that. But I'm just saying in terms of thinking about contemporary theologians, right? I, I think it's fair to say, although certainly correct me if I'm wrong, right? That over time, sort of the, the default assumption of, let's say, many contemporary Bali um, Machshava, um, right, assumes more heavy-handed Hashkacha model. In fact, I, I can't even think of one example, maybe Revar Lichtenstein a little bit in that article in Bitachon, but off the top of my head, I can't think of like any contemporary example of somebody who is actively pushing, right, 
a more sort of view which focuses on you know a heavy role of nature among non sadikim so i'm just curious is that do you think that's an accurate assessment i think it's largely true um it's really interesting why um wh- why that happens i've seen some people suggest uh, blame it on the balshamtov um or the spread of kabbalah i've other people have suggested that it relates to the rejection of a Greek perspective um, in terms of philosophy. Um, the truth is, if you think about it, you know, one could really wonder why wouldn't you believe in Hashkacha? In other words, what's what's stopping absolute Hashkacha? Why wouldn't Hakadosh Baruch Hu not control what happens as long as it's done in such a way that still allows for free will? Why wouldn't you take it? Um, I think there might be some answers to that question, but but I do think I, I do tend to agree that 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 certainly become dominant. And one of the things to think about actually is the hashkacha in the change of hashkacha, right, right, right. change of perspective in hashkacha. There's um, there's a famous passage in the Zohar that talks about how in the sixth millennium, in the sixth generation of the sixth millennium, which corresponds to the year 5600, so the gates of wisdom will become open and available to the public. It relates to another podcast that has a lot of popularity. So what is, um, what's happening there? So a number of thinkers, including Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, is quoted as saying that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will open up and make us more aware, more of a, have a better understanding of the world um, than previously, both because that's going to be necessary to combat heresy, and also because as we come closer to Mashiach, we'll have a better understanding of the truth. Whatever the reason is, I do think I do generally speaking accept with I agree with your observation, and I think that um, it relates to um, a more a broader discussion about the evolution and development uh, in Torah. Um, this isn't the only example of this phenomenon, though it might be perhaps one of the most. Uh, one of the most interesting examples. And I, I think that that we we believe that uh, there's hashkacha there too. And that's something that we need, we, 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 HaKadosh Baruch Hu felt that uh, we need to be aware of the extent of his hashkacha. And perhaps while once upon a time, that awareness wasn't so important for us. Now, it's so, so important for us to be aware of, of the degree of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's uh, hand in our life. And, and we have to make sure that um, we allow that to penetrate our thoughts because if HaKadosh Baruch Hu let us, let us into that insight, so we have to make sure that uh, we, we take advantage. Okay, Rabbi Tal, thank you so much. That was uh, an amazing conversation. Obviously, we touched on 
many, many topics. Each one of them could be uh, not only a podcast, but it could be a dissertation. So uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. This was really great. I just want to reiterate that uh, Rav Natano also, if you want to learn more about these topics, I highly recommend uh, both of his books. Just remind me, where, well, I have them in my library, but they're behind me. I can't see them. What are the names of the books? Sure. They're Illuminating Jewish Thought, and uh, there are two volumes so far. The third volume actually has um, a section on providence. It's about... Um, we have a whole chapter on the Rambam's view, if you're more interested in that. It's about 50 pages or 60 pages just on the Rambam and about two, two, 250 or 300 pages on uh, all of the various perspectives on Ashkacha. So I, I hope to uh, finish that up over the summer and, um, and, and hopefully it'll be available to the public, uh, I don't know, in a, within a half a year, let's say. I'm not sure exactly how long it'll, it'll take. Um, but the, their uh, illuminating Jewish thought is what it's called. Uh, volumes one, volume one is, uh, and volume two. I don't remember well, the, the titles. Also, I assume you have many shiurim on these topics on why you Torah. Also, is that an, uh, a fair assessment? Yes. Okay, wonderful. So. And the thing I would add to, to for anyone who's interested in this, and, it, and really this is what's so important, is to learn the sugya, to not just be satisfied with simple answers but but we have such a rich literature um you know when it comes to the position of the rambam anyone that thinks that they could summarize the rambam's position right. in a sentence right. you know, right. is totally wrong right um, and uh and if these are topics that do interest you dive in and and work on it and take the time to to really try to learn it well and if you do so I think uh, you'll find yourself very, very enriched and, and enabled and, and you'll appreciate, um, even though it's hard work and you might not have uh, the answers to all your questions, but your, your perspective on the universe and on the world and on religious life will be totally different. All right, Matan, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita. <laughs>